right, back to 1 Peter chapter 2. That's kind of a transitional paragraph that leads us into a larger section. So, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, uh, the Word of God is living and active. It is like a two-edged sword, able to divide bone and marrow. And may that uh, very sword this morning be at work amongst us, uh, separating uh, faith from unbelief, uh, the desires of the flesh from the desires of the Spirit. Continue this process of making all those who trust in Jesus more like Jesus. And reveal to each of us that we need Jesus. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. In World War One, <clears throat> there was that one of these interesting things that happened is that uh, Tsarist Russia was engaged with conflict on the side of the Allies against Germany, led by Kaiser Wilhelm. But they also had another problem, an internal problem, and that was the rise of the Bolsheviks. And so for a short period of time, they were engaged in conflict on two fronts, one external and one internal. And they soon gave up the external because they had lost the internal conflict. The Bolsheviks had won. It was no longer Tsarist Russia. And they withdrew from World War I. When we live in unfaithful places we can experience this conflict on those two fronts. There is an external conflict that we have with the unfaithful culture that is around us and people who don't believe who are around us, but let us not think that is it. There continues to be an internal conflict, much like the Bolshevik Revolution in Tsarist Russia. In the midst of all of that, we are called to, what I was saying, faith in the trenches in both of these conflicts. And so our big idea this morning kind of deals with that in the sense that we are to demonstrate the excellence of Christ, we declare. And we'll make sense of this. We'll connect these dots, hopefully, in the next couple of minutes. But we start with how we live in the world for Jesus Christ flows from who we are in Christ Himself. Peter is beginning to shift from the blessings of the gospel that are due to our relation... Uh, sorry. The blessings of the gospel is shifting from that to our relationship with the world that is around us. But our identity to Christ is the spring from which our lifestyle or our conduct or gospel conversation is meant to flow. It's as though the spring is, is under the fountain and it, it erupts up and the water comes and 
flows everywhere. Without the spring, there's no water in the fountain. Without our identity in Jesus Christ, there is not going to be that faithful witness, or however you want to call it, to the world that is around us. There'll be no godly living, both in our terms of our person and our, and in our relationship with the people who are around us. And so we have to have that spring. We have to be connected to Jesus in the living waters that he provides. And Peter is not unaware of this because even as he transitions from one place to another, as he pivots, he brings up the reality of our relationship with Christ once again by calling them beloved. He starts this with an odd thing, beloved. He wants them to remember that they were loved by God and they're also loved by Peter because just like us, they probably struggled with knowing that they are loved children. We struggle with this, with this knowledge of whether or not we are loved We are so used to trying to gain acceptance, trying to gain love, because it is such a, is so woven into the fabric of a fallen world. Think about school. What did you do? You sought to earn love and acceptance from your teacher by being obedient in class and getting good grades. Well, some of you tried that. <laughs> some, maybe not so much. Okay, maybe that maybe that uh, wasn't important to you. But you also were worried about the students around you. You wanted friends to feel love and acceptance from friends. And sometimes we do things that are uncharacteristic or not not really in link with who we are because we're trying to gain love and acceptance from friends or rather to make people our friends, to be attractive to them so they will be our friends. And, you know, it's not just something that happens at school. What happens when you go to work? You need to make your boss love you and accept you so you still have a job next week, as well as you want to have good relationships with those around you, and so you try to win some of them as friends, which is probably why that Dale Carnegie book, How to Make Friends and Influence People, was such a popular bestseller. Because we want to be loved. And the problem is, is that we think we can earn that love. But this love from God is not one that we earn, it's one that is bestowed upon us. It is a reflection of family. Because family is really the one place where we start off as loved. We don't say to the newborn infant, dance for me. Make me smile. Make me love you. We just love our children. Because they're our children. They can't do anything yet except eat and burp and sleep. But we love them. That is the one place where you are loved unconditionally to prepare you for the understanding that God does that very same thing. He does not love us for what he, uh, we do for Him, but He loves us for our own good. But we see that in grace, 
not only does God say He loves us, but we see that God demonstrated His love for us. And if you read the third and fourth chapters of John's first letter, that just keeps cycling through. The reality that God is love, but you know what? That love was demonstrated. It was made manifest, not just declared, because the Father sent His Son to give us life, because the Father gave His Son that He has an appropriate propitiation or sacrifice for our sin so that we can have life. And so God didn't just say, I love you, I love you, I love you, just as a parent doesn't just say that. But He demonstrated His love. A parent demonstrates the love by feeding you and clothing you and hugging you and putting band-aids on your boo-boos and all of those sorts of things. Uh, Okay? The Father displayed His Exorbitant love. His lavish love by sending His Son to die for sinners. Now this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but but hang with me for a moment. Because I think it it really is connected to uh, what we've already seen as priests, that whole idea of the declaration of His love, that we're to declare His excellencies. The church has historically struggled. It's struggled with the tensions. And we see this most clearly in America in the struggle between modernism and fundamentalism in the early part of the 20th century. Because for a while there, at the end of the 19th century, you had um, the rise of what later became called the social gospel the idea of what would Jesus do, that's not a 20th century notion, that's really a 19th century notion. And what happened is, is that initially people were wanting to demonstrate the love of Christ that they also declared, but at some point in time it became a social gospel in that the declaration was forgotten and the demonstration was all that was left. And so you had a modernist church which was not declaring Jesus Christ, but was trying to do good. And then you had the pushback by the fundamentalists who said, well, no, the social gospel is not going to save anybody, and and they were right in that. And so they talked about how the need to declare, but they overcorrected, and all they wanted to do was declare. They forgot about the demonstration. And so initially, the evangelical movement was trying to bring these two things back together. It's gone awry in a different way because sinners are sinners, and this is what we do. But in Christ, we are meant to not only declare the excellencies of God, but we're also meant to demonstrate the excellencies of God, which we will see. There's another aspect of how Paul addresses, uh, sorry, Peter addresses these people. Our union with Christ alters our relationship to the world so that on the one hand, as we've seen before, with relationship to God, we're beloved. We're not beloved with regard to the world. We are considered to be strangers and exiles or sojourners and exiles. A sojourner is basically what is called a resident alien. Someone who has, in our modern parlance, a green card. 
Okay, It's someone who is registered, and they often paid a tax for the privilege of living in that community and doing trade there. Okay, you, you, you would show up at the city, you'd talk to the officials, they'd find out who you were, where you're from, why you're there, and then if you're there for business, grease the palm, please. Okay. Peter wants these people to recognize they're not citizens of the place where they live. They're not going to be treated as though they have all the rights of a citizen, just like a resident alien doesn't have all the rights of a legal citizen. But it also has, he combines these two, he brings up both of these words because the exile has that connotation of um, you didn't choose to be there, okay? You're not there on vacation, you're not there for business, you didn't choose to be there. But you're living in a land that is not your own, and it is one that is marked by strangeness. A place where you feel like you don't fit in, and you're not wanted. The Babylonians, they really didn't want the Israelites hanging out among them, and they stuck them in the ghettos. When I first visited Tucson in December of 2009, I thought, what a strange place. <laughs> as, I've, as I told some people with regard to RUF coming here and everything, it's like you've landed on the moon. At least it felt that way for me. Because I'm used to green. And all I see is dirt and rock. That's why you got to look up so you can see the green. Okay. I'm still getting used to Tucson. I still can't get used to Tucson time and some of the other strange things. There's a sense in which I don't necessarily belong in Tucson, and yet here I am by the providence of God, placed here for the purposes of the gospel. That's how they were to think. I may not belong here, but I've been placed here for the purposes of the gospel. We're to remember that our citizenship is in heaven, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3.20. We don't fit in completely with those who are around us. Our ethics and our values, they come from our true citizenship. They come from heaven, not the places that we periodically pass through. And that can be difficult to remember at times. But our being in Christ displays itself in doing for Christ or how we live. Secondly, kind of more into what's going on in this passage, we are to demonstrate His greatness and goodness by, first off, denying sinful passions. And so our identity as beloved shows us kind of what side we're supposed to fight on, right? And what side we're not supposed to fight on. Our devotion to God is demonstrated by the pursuit of holiness in the power of Christ. That's essentially a summary of what Peter is trying to get at here when he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Abstain. Basically, this idea of kind of keeping something at arm's length to prevent the demonstration of something. 
recognizing that uh, what they are is not a good thing and trying to keep it far away from you, such as maybe radioactive material or, since we already talked about babies, diapers. Okay? Abstaining from these things. I mean, what are we supposed to abstain from? It's not everything, but he mentions specifically the passions of the flesh. Similar to what we read about there in Titus chapter 2, the, the worldly desires or worldly passions. And these, the, this phrase kind of has this idea of the craving for the forbidden or also the idea of animal appetites. Something that, because we're made in the image of God and redeemed by Jesus Christ, are kind of beneath us. And when I think of animal appetites, I I can't help but think of my dog, Cody, or Jaden's dog, Cody, as the case may be, because he reveals a lot of these animal appetites. Cody always has to be first, okay? You're going to let the dogs in, and, and there's Cody. He might be a bit far off, but as soon as he sees you at that door, he runs so that he can nudge Lulu over to the side so he can be in first. Why? He has an animal appetite that must be desi- must be satisfied, and that is to be first. And so if there's any, you know, scratching Lulu behind the ears, he gets upset because he needs some of that scratching behind the ears too. And if any of the members of my family give an embrace whatsoever, the barking starts because he's left out. He has to have a place in all of this. The animal appetites. We also call him Cody the Devourer. Because he always wants to eat. He would eat us out of house and home if we allowed him to. And so he's always kind of lurking by the garage door, wondering when he's going to get more food, which lies on the other side of that garage door. If we're not careful, he's up on the counter trying to devour food that we have foolishly left upon the counter. And so I think of Cody when I think of fleshly appetites and desires. And so we see as John Newton, uh, not John Newton, the other John, John Owen, I kept putting all kinds of things wrong this week. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, and tempting. And so you don't get a vacation from the sinful desires that rise up in your own heart and mind They're almost always present there, clamoring for your attention like Cody, my dog. Clamor, clamor, clamor. But we see a couple of things. Because we're united to Christ, and He therefore dwells in us, and He Himself is holy, we must, as J.C. Ryle says, Quarrel with our sin. Quarrel with those desires. We must be trained by the grace of God to say no or to renounce those desires. Sometimes it's as simple as that. I think the older I get, the more aware I am of my pride and the ways in which these sinful, prideful thoughts pop up over the course of any given day, and so three to four times a day, I have to say no. 
I'm not going to entertain that appeal to my pride. That's what it's like. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Sometimes it's, well, I mentioned, it could be three, four times a day. It could be ten times a day. But continuing to resist, to hold these things at bay, to abstain from entertaining them. Not only that, but we are beloved by the Father, who also is holy, and as His children, by grace and by adoption, we ought to have a desire to please Him by becoming holy. And so when these pockets of unfaithfulness reveal themselves in our hearts, we resist them because we have a greater love, a different love, a better love. Again, it's not trying to earn His love, but by resting in His love, we forsake sin. Now, we see as well that because we are strangers and exiles, Calvin says we're guests. And that means, us build on that guests thing, that we do not have the run of the house. For instance, I hope if you spent a weekend with us that you would not completely devour everything in the food pantry. Right? Unless you asked. Okay? But if you live there, you eat everything that's in the pantry. There's nothing that's forbidden you within the pantry. But if you're a guest, you don't just walk into someone's pantry and start consuming all of their food. You don't decide that the room you're staying in should be another color. Go out, buy paint, and just do it. You're a guest. You don't have run of the house. You don't treat the woman of the house as if she were your spouse. And so there's limits to what we do. We restrain the desires that we might have. What's going on with these desires? These desires wage war against our souls. I mentioned before that you essentially have a terror cell living within your own heart. You're engaged in warfare. There is trench warfare that necessarily has to take place internally within you. That much of the the Christian life, as Luther said, is conflict. And a lot of that conflict is conflict no one else ever sees. Because it's conflict in your heart as you wage war against these earthly, fleshly, worldly desires. These desires that promise you self-fulfillment. They promise you a pleasure of some sort that you will take great delight in, but in reality what they do is destroy you and the image of God. Just think of it in terms of addiction. The substance, and it could be something as simple as food. I like sugar. I like sugar too much. Sugar, I'm not sure exactly what it promises me besides pleasure. You know, that's one of the things that is warped, not warped, but kind of woven into my Fallen personality is pleasure. And sugar offers me a form of pleasure. 
but sugar can destroy me. Sugar can destroy my teeth through cavities. Sugar can destroy me through diabetes and obesity. Sugar can destroy me in many ways. In fact, I just heard on the radio on my way here this morning the ways that refined or processed sugar affects the organs of the bodies and destroys the body. My love for sugar can kill me. It may take 40 years, but it's destructive nonetheless. So we don't need to talk about heroin or methamphetamine to recognize that addictions, fleshly desires, can overwhelm us and destroy us because their intention is indeed to wage war against our souls. The way in which you translate that phrase, though, could also refer to the according to your soul, meaning according to the particular weaknesses and habits of your particular soul. And so because of the ways that we've been sinned against, or the the genetic material we've gotten, however you want to think about it, because it is beyond us in some ways. Okay, Alcoholism, in some cases, is inherited. Because of that, though, our souls may rise up in different ways. My soul rises up in different ways than your soul rises up. I have particular weaknesses that that you don't have. We might have some in common. I know some of you are also love sugar. Okay? I can see. Each of us will experience these desires of the flesh that seek to destroy us. They want to kill us. And so... Imagine how foolish it would be for someone to come across a rattlesnake in the deserts of Tucson and not kill it, or at least avoid it. You know, a lot of us give a rattlesnake wide berth, but to think of rather the person playing with the rattlesnake. Oh, pretty rattlesnake. Give me a kiss. We don't do that. Because we recognize the rattlesnake will kill us. And yet, so often with our sin, that's exactly what we do. We play with it. We give it little kisses. We hide it from other people. And it does its work in waging war against our souls. So this is why Romans 8, it talks about, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Paul is encouraging there, as he did in Titus 2, to say no to those sinful desires. And why John Owen, the great Puritan, said, Be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's a death match. When Jesus was... uh, in the wilderness, and the evil one had come to tempt him, and uh, he appealed to his earthly hunger and said, turn this stone into bread so that you may live. Jesus repeated to him that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And it says that's because Christ has done that 
for the salvation of our souls. That's part of how he lived, lived in a perfectly obedient life. But he also empowers us because he dwells in us so that we can start to say, man does not live by gluttony alone. Man does not live by pornography alone. Man does not live by pride or position alone. Man does not live by comfort or pleasure or just list your sins. List the desires of your soul. You do not live by them. But remind yourself that you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God to sustain you. Not only that, but because you are united to Christ, you have the armor of God, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6, in order to withstand temptation. You have the helmet of salvation. You have the belt of truth. You have the boots of the gospel. You have the shield of faith. You have all of these things because you already have Jesus Christ. And they were given to you for this fight in the trenches so that you can abstain from the desires that rise up within your own heart. Don't think that all temptation comes from without. Recognize that much of it comes from within. But you must remember, and I I believe that the context here of chapter 1 and chapter 2, with its focus on how precious Jesus is, it's tied to that idea that the more precious I believe Jesus is, the less... I will be overcome by those temptations for something else. When I start to realize Jesus is better than refined sugar. Jesus is better than fill in your blank. He's better than pornography. He's better than money. He's better than uh, being first in class. He's better than all of those things. And we have to remind ourselves of that. That what He offers us is so much better so that the greater love expels the lesser love. And so, sanctification is in part seeking your satisfaction and security in Christ and not in the world and all of the desires of your heart. So our hearts are unfaithful places with these soul-killing desires that we're intended to deny. Sort of like the czarists were supposed to deny the Bolsheviks. Thirdly, demonstrate His greatness and goodness through good living. So in sanctification, they talk about the mortification of sin putting to things to death, but also talk about the vivification, the bringing, together, bringing to life of other things, good things. And actually, this is the same sentence. 12, 11, uh, 11 and 12 are part of the same sentence, and so they're part of that whole idea together. That sanctification or, or being faithful is not just saying no to sin but it's also saying yes to something else. And so Peter says to them, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And so while denying the sinful desires, we also begin to follow godly desires. 
This honorable life that Peter's talking about is something that is good, something that's excellent, something that is admirable or praiseworthy. In other words, it's goodness demonstrated. Okay? Because you're united to Jesus and He dwells in you, you begin to do good. You now have the power to do good. And so Paul connects these things in a couple of places. For instance, Ephesians chapter 2, one of the, the clearest demonstrations that we're saved by faith alone. By grace you have been saved through faith alone. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. And if you stopped right there, you'd think good works didn't matter. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so you do not do good works in order to be saved, but because you have been saved by the grace of God, He has also made good works for you to do. See the same thing in Titus chapter 2. Not only right there in that context were they supposed to renounce ungodliness, but they were also to be zealous for good works. To adorn the gospel as something praiseworthy, something admirable. And so the sweetness and excellency of Jesus is something, is something that we declare, but it's also something that we're intended to demonstrate by good works. Caring for the poor, for the orphan, for the widow, for instance. Doing a good job at work, being faithful and uh, not stealing from our employer. Uh, we're going to get into a bunch of that stuff in the weeks to come as uh, Peter unpacks this a little bit more. But there's the recon recognition of the conflict that's going to em emerge as a result. Guilty Gentiles are going to speak against you as evildoers. If you live a good life in Christ Jesus, what's going to happen is that you will be slandered if you live in an unfaithful place. For instance, from way, way back, we have Tacitus talking about Christians. They were hated because of their vices. Those misunderstood vices. That's what, really what it was. We have, uh, I can't even pronounce this game, guy's name, uh, Suetonius, who said that the Christians were a class of people animated by a novel and dangerous superstition. And so, way back in the early church, we had people hated, who hated Christ, hated the church, and slandered the church, twisting the Lord's table into cannibalism, twisting the love feast into some, court, some kind of debaucherous thing, lies to avoid the goodness. The lies should not surprise us. As John, Jesus said in John 15, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And so when we live like Jesus... The world is going to hate us because the world hates Jesus. Okay. Now, 
hated by others, there's a temptation to take place that takes place. <clears throat> the inner heart, once again, comes into play. Some people are tempted to withdraw from society. Well, you know, if the church just kind of withdraws and forms these, um, you know, almost like monastic communities somehow and a subculture that's set apart from the stain of the world, that's one temptation that people experience. Another temptation is to respond in kind. You lied about me, I'm going to lie about you. You try to take away my business, I'm going to try and take away your business. Both of these are wrong. Both of these are not what Peter has in mind, not what God has in mind, not what the Spirit would be leading you to do. We're to continue to engage in good. We're to continue to engage with people even though they may not like us uh, may not agree with us, uh, but we're not to run away and hide, and we're not to return the insults in kind. We're to continue to love them, to do good to our enemies, as Jesus did. Part of how we can do that is by keeping that day of visitation in mind. That there is going to be a day that God has appointed when He's going to return. Okay, and so we continue to do goods for the for the glory of God, uh, not for the response we get from other people. And the light shines, and in that day of visitation, whether they want to or not, people will see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven, as Jesus said in Matthew five. And so when we continue to live faithfully to Him in the face, in the face of uh, faithless opposition, we will see that there might be some people who do repent in the present. There are some people who are overwhelmed with um, the faith of others and their unwillingness to let go of it under opposition that they begin to say, that Jesus must be worth a lot to that person. That Jesus must be worth a lot and come to faith. We've seen that in the tales of many people who have been oppressed and tortured for Christ. But ultimately, everyone will glorify God on the last day. Against their will, perhaps? But they will glorify God because they will no longer be able to lie about His people. That's a lot to chew on, isn't it? Being united to Christ means that God is our ally. But it also means that we make some enemies. On the one hand, there are still unfaithful places in our own hearts that prompt these fleshly desires that seek to destroy us. And so there's a trench battle going, there's trench warfare going on in our own hearts. Not only that, but we are surrounded by faithless people who hate any inclination towards godliness because they hate God Himself. And so there is trench warfare that takes place. 
that's very different with them. But we have to remember that we, because we are united to Christ, we have the armor of God in order to withstand this trench warfare that we face both without and within. Because of the gospel, we believe that Jesus equips and empowers us to abstain and to live honorable lives. And so that's what we're going to unpack with Peter for the next couple of weeks. Let's pray. Father, most of us um, have never seen real combat. But even the prospect of spiritual combat intimidates us. We feel overwhelmed by the desires that rise up within us. We feel outnumbered by the people at work or our neighborhood that speak against the gospel and against Jesus. We feel intimidated to silence as our culture seems to be increasingly um, vindictive against people who disagree and dissent. And so, Father, we ask that you would be instructing us, not just from this passage, but others, as to how to engage in the battle within as well as the battle without. That you would be teaching us by your grace how to put to death the misdeeds of the body and the power of the Spirit. That you and the, the power of that same Spirit would lead us so that we act upon the good desires that He produces in, uh, in us. That we would have um, a mind that desires the glory of God. And that is not something that happens by accident. That's something that only you can produce. And so we ask that you would indeed produce that in us. And be with us as we talk about work and family and government in the weeks to come and how our faith plays out in those places and the conflict that emerges in those places. We desperately need that help, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen.